Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chapar, Director of News at The Block, and I am very pleased to be joined on the other side of the mic by the inimitable Ronan Ryan, President and Co-Founder of IEX Group, the exchange operator, of course, made famous in Michael Lewis's Flash Boys. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no, glad to be on. And uh, it's one of the best intros I've gotten in a while. So thank Frank. Well, hey, I'm setting the bar high. Um, you guys have this beer, right? This um, oh, yeah. liquidity, right? Yes, yes. Your beer is actually like distributed by my roommate's beer company. Oh, and fantastic. So I'm, at, yeah. I'm, I'm at Tap Room yesterday and I'm getting some beer as, as I typically do on a Tuesday afternoon. And... I hear someone talking about liquidity, liquidity. We need to get the liquidity. <laughs> and uh, it, I was like, that's the IEX beer. And they were like, yeah, it goes any good. They go, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know how we chose that beer? We, we had a, an event at our office last year and we had 32 brokers there and we had eight samples of beer. We partnered with a brewery called Good Word Brewery, fantastic group of people out of like Georgia. And we had the brokers vote on an app and the liquidity is the recipe that was chosen by far and away. So it's kind of like a light IPA. A lot of times people think IPA and you have that ah, aftertaste. This it's one like is a light fashion, aftertaste. Like a yeah, it's, it's, very, it's, it's very good. But because the president of the stock exchange is Irish, our Marcom's team are fantastic and they're brewing a Guinness-like. So we're going to call it dark liquidity. And then we're going to have a Largo with Larger, which is lit liquidity. And it's just a fun way to interact with your clients. Obviously, we're not monetizing beer, but like what we do is we send uh, like four packs out to our clients. And then when, now that we can do more of it, maybe we'll have some like Zoom calls where join us with your liquidity on the call or when we have people to our office or when we do our podcast, actually, as a joke, we open up a, a can of liquidity at the beginning as well. So that's it's just it's just a bit of fun, but um, I love that. I, I think the beer is a little bit better than okay, but <laughs> I'll drink most anything. <laughs> you are probably the second person to come on the show who also hosts a podcast. Considering Joe and Tracy at Bloomberg are a duo, so you're technically the third person who also hosts a podcast. What's it What's it been like? Have you been enjoying yourself doing the show? We yeah, can get a little yeah. plug in. No, I appreciate that. I have to say when our Marcom's team uh, asked John Ramsey and I to do a podcast, we kind of thought it was a silly idea. And we're like, who's going to want to talk uh, U.S. equity market structure? But then we did it with a little bit of um, levity in mind, right? And not take yourself so serious. And you find that there, there is some interesting things to talk about that people in the non-trading community like to listen to. So we actually have a pretty large listenership and we have a lot of fun doing it and we put them out like every two weeks it's called boxes and lines and i didn't take my uh my duo partner on here so i feel, feel like i'm cheating on the guy the bloomberg people came on as a duo yeah we won't tell we won't tell john <laughs> i just won't tell him to listen to this we'll one keep it a secret to him yeah. until we get him on at a future point in time and then he and i can cheat on you <laughs> nice. um what are some of the things you've picked up on that resonates with maybe folks who aren't super plugged into market structure that you've talked about on the show? 
Yeah, I just think, um, you know, people in a, in a lot of ways, and even myself before I joined the industry, are slightly enamored with Wall Street and trading. And then you're slightly intimidated by it when you hear all the terminology. So what we tend to try to do is talk about current market structure topics, like why are people slinging mud back and forth at one another about market data? What the hell is market data? Why does it matter? You know, is this a conversation or is this an argument between rich stock exchanges and rich stockbrokers, right? And why should it matter to the institutional investor? And why does it even matter to an individual investor? So what we try to do, and we're, we're not always successful in it because, Frank, as you know, you used to cover this industry. It's pretty wonky speak, right? And to try and take it down to English is sort of the main goal. And then we have a little bit of a laugh here or there. But that's really it. It's trying to simplify it. And in truth, you know, and, and I mean, no disrespect to anybody in the industry, but we also work in an industry where no one ever puts their hand up and says they don't understand something. So if you can even simplify it for folks that um, people might think they already understand it, I think it's very beneficial. So I've been surprised by the people within the industry who listen to it. Like uh, we've had a lot of reach outs from like broker dealers, from quantitative trading firms, from all kinds of buy side firms, as well as then, um, you know, people not in the industry. So I guess that's our main thing. Some of the times we get a little bit too wonky, I feel. I, I try to interject some sort of explanation, but um, what we do is not rocket science, and maybe we should talk about it like it's not rocket science. Yeah. I mean, there are large groups across Wall Street who engage with the market every day and don't necessarily understand or care about some of the issues that underpin how it works, right? And so yeah, that's a huge target audience. You know, you're thinking investment bankers, maybe financial advisors who are, you know, constructing portfolios or, you know, working on large deals, SPACs maybe, um, yeah. but don't know about some of these complex uh, market structure debates that you were alluding to. But yeah, I love that you guys have so much fun. I mean, you guys had um, one of my favorite financial meme accounts on liquidity, um, liquidity, yeah. um, lit capital. And, uh, that was an interesting episode. The yeah, it was great. Are, are really great. Yeah. I think that got our most, uh, listenership. So maybe we shouldn't be so impressed with ourselves and be more impressed with his listenership. But yeah, there was a lot, lot of different people tuned in and he was our first, uh, non industry guest which I thought was, was great. So I, I think we'll do that in the future as well. And I'm guessing it's kind of like what you do. You try to get a wide gamut of people on your podcast. There's, there's some similar themes, but um, just make them as different as, as you can. So I think that's our goal going forward. But yeah, in answer to your very first question, I've been surprised how much fun we're actually having with it. And as long as people still listen to it and we're not annoying them, we'll, we'll keep doing it. I think it's incredibly important to bring in outside voices to shed light on some of the things that you're looking at within your own respective corner of the market. That's part of the reason why I bring people like you onto the show is because although you're not necessarily in crypto or working in digital assets, there are things that you're working on every day that are relevant to some of the conversations happening in my space. I guess we can pivot to market data, but interestingly, and something that I find so fascinating given you know, the, the long standing debates around market data is that in crypto, none of the exchanges charge for market data. That's the standard, which is such a stark contrast to what exists in equity. So I guess for maybe some of those listeners who trade in crypto, trade on crypto exchanges who are, you know, maybe getting their faces ripped off on fees, but don't have to pay anything for market data, walk us through kind of maybe the origins of, of this debate and where both sides sit, that being yeah, the changes absolutely. on one side and then the brokers on the other. Absolutely. And, and what I would say, and I, I don't mean it in a smart ass way, but um, none of them are charging for it yet. I wouldn't be surprised to see that change down the line. And I only say that because the same thing occurred with U.S. equity stock exchanges. And even if you take, for example, BATS is a stock exchange that launched back in 2005 at something called an ECN, which is basically like a baby stock exchange and became a stock exchange in 2007. And they did not charge for market data for a long period of time. And then before they went public, they started to charge for it. So maybe, uh, you know, U.S. equities is kind of like a litmus test and is just slightly ahead of the green in terms of 
you know, what you'll see in your space. But I wouldn't be surprised to see exchanges charging for data uh, down the line. Like exchanges used to not charge for data in uh, U.S. equities either, right? So this this debate, frankly, is it, it was funny to me. I didn't realize how long it's been going on, but it's been going on since like the late 1990s. And there's been a lot of back and forth on, you know, is this data our data? Meaning the broker is saying, is this our data? We're sending you these trades. Uh, you're reflecting these trades on your exchanges, and then you're charging us to see these trades on your exchanges. And I think where IEX stands, and I think where most of the industry stands now, like 20 years later, that, look, it's okay to charge for technology and, you know, augmenting the data, aggregating the data from all the brokers and putting it out on the data feed. There is value in that, and you should charge for that. But the real debate and the real mudslinging comes around you know, the fees that are being charged for market data and the ancillary products that come with market data. So just to give you an example, and again, hopefully um, this is not boring to your listeners, but in U.S. equities, uh, they have something called co-location. And co-location is probably as technical as I'll get right now, but all tech co-location means is if you want to trade in the fastest speed possible, you need to get closest to the signal, meaning you need to get as close to the exchange as possible. So the exchanges will sell space for your computers to go in the same building as their computers and connect to the exchange. That's the fastest way you can understand what's going on on any of the exchanges. And this took place starting in the early 2000s. And now, obviously, everybody offers co-location. You have to be in the same building as the exchange in order to compete. If anything to do with your strategy, if anything in your strategy has anything to do with speed. And everything is speed in U.S. equities. And I, I think what happened is, like I said earlier, uh, U.S. equities sort of was the litmus test for uh, European equities. And then other asset classes like fixed income and FX and everything is going more electronic and everything is going more fast. So as things get faster and speed is more valuable, the exchanges turned to monetizing this speed. So the exchanges themselves now charge for this co-location space in these data centers and a big debate and why I bring this up is you pay to be in the data center next to the exchange, but then you have to pay the exchange from a cable to connect your computer to the exchange's computer. And that cable is called a cross connect. And when you look at that, like I grew up in the data center business. When I left college, I did network engineering in the telco space. I worked in the data center business doing co-location for the exchanges. This is how I got into this business. And it's very, very well known that a cross connect is usually only about $300 a month to pay for that cable. And it's a very, very, very profitable business at $300 per month. Whereas now it's gotten to such an excess of fees that some of the exchanges are charging as much as $40,000 a month for that same cable. And that's where the brokers have kind of come out and said, enough is enough. And if you look at the ecosystem of US equities, you have commission rates going down and brokers are paid on a per share basis. So if they trade, 500 million shares one day or 100 million shares the next day, they're paid variably, but yet they have to pay the exchanges for all these cables and all this market data. And sort of at the beginning of every month, they're in the hole by writing a massive check to the exchange, uh, not based on the number of shares that they trade there. And that's just basically where the debate has gotten more and more aggressive because the exchange fees have just increased. Obviously, they never decrease, but they continue to increase and usually the way it works in U.S. equity file markets is when you file a pricing change, you just file a pricing change and it's approved upon receipt. So if you send in, okay, I'm going to charge X for this feed or X for this cross connect now, there's no real approval process to that. And what that's resulted in is that fees have increased like several hundred percent over the past like seven to eight years. So I don't want to you know, IEX, obviously, we as a stock exchange are members of the other stock exchanges and we connect there and our fees have gone up several hundred percent. And we've only been around and trading since 2013 and as a stock exchange since 2016. But you'll see if you start to look at the debate now, how many brokers have submitted uh, documentation and like SIFMA, which is a industry group of brokers have submitted documentation onto what their fees were back in like 2007, for example compared to what they are now. And some brokers, so it's not IEX saying this, have submitted data where the fees have gone up over 700%. So it's gotten to a point where when push comes to shove, now the brokers are pushing back. And you can see that, like, again, this is not IEX rhetoric or IEX's opinion, 
That is absolutely why there's a new stock exchange launching in September called MEMEX, M-E-M-X, and it stands for Members Exchange. And Members Exchange is a group of broker-dealers that basically got together and they're launching their own stock exchange and going to charge reasonable market data fees at some point. Usually when exchanges launch, they don't charge for market data at the beginning or any of the fees like the cross-connects I told you about. But essentially, it's a revolt against you know New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and CBOE. There's 13 stock exchanges in the U.S. New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and CBOE own 12 of them. So they've acquired a bunch of stock exchanges. And that's essentially like the definition of like why Memex you know, publicly are saying they're launching this new stock exchange because calls to lower the fees or to stop the fees from being continually raised or, you know, being heard with deaf ears. And the SEC has tried to intervene. It hasn't been wholly successful to date. You know, there's a lot of things that have occurred, like uh, the industry called for IEX because we're the one stock exchange that doesn't charge for fees to publicly disclose our costs to provide these fees, which we did last year. And what we're trying to do is show that, look, obviously, you're free to make money. This is a capitalist society. IEX believes in capitalism. Don't get me wrong. But should you be charging thousands of percent markup, for example, on these cross-connect cables? What's fair? Just because a broker can technically afford it, you'll see there's less and less brokers as the years go by. And there's more pressure on the brokers um, with commission rates going so low. Like Something has to give. So we've been trying as an exchange to partner with the brokerage community because it also rolls downhill to the buy side. You know, the institutional investors who trade with the brokers, if the brokers can't make money off of trading on behalf of these clients, you know, then they have other decisions to make. So it does matter to the institutional investors, which is why many of the large institutional investment firms got behind letters that were submitted to the SEC. So like firms like Fidelity and firms like T. Rowe Price and Capital Group have been supportive of the SEC taking a real stringent look at uh, market data fees. And the DOJ and SEC announced not too long ago that they're going to take a deeper look into this. It's interesting, right? Because yes. there are very fascinating arguments on both sides to give the exchanges maybe um, some time in the sun right now, right? They would argue that the feeds are optional and that any trading firm could terminate the feeds and opt for the public market data that's available. And of course, they have a right to charge for the um, technology that they're sort of providing. But there's another side to the coin. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And when I say, look, we're a stock exchange. We could start charging for this tomorrow if you wanted. But what we want as a stock exchange, like us and the other exchanges, we're self-regulatory organizations which means we have a lot of freedom and you can't have it both ways. You can't just continue to charge fees because people need those fees. And to say they're optional is really uh, unequivocally, and I'm trying to be fair to my uh, competitors here, but that's completely and utterly uh, disingenuous. And no one could look you in the eye and say that. It's not optional. It's not optional for bulge back at banks. Jesus, that's like a tongue twister to take uh, public data feeds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't. The triple B's, we'll call them. They can't yeah. take those public feeds. Those public feeds, not only are they too slow, they don't include all of the data necessary to run the algorithms. And, like, look, it was said at, um, it was, um, God, it's a while ago now, but it was October of 2018. There was a big thing called a market data. I don't know, you, you might have already been out of this uh, beat at the time, Frank, but there was a two day market data session down at the SEC. And they had exchange executives speaking. We were on a few panels. They had buy side speaking. And there was large institutional investors saying that they could not trade with brokers and keep their, maintain their fiduciary responsibility if the brokers were not taking the direct feeds from the exchanges. The other thing that's very important you know, for people who don't know this industry is you are obligated from a regulatory standpoint. And this is where you know, competition doesn't play. You as a broker have to connect to all of these exchanges. You have to connect to all 13, including IEX. And you can't take the public data feeds because it's not acceptable to your clients. So you have to take these feeds in order to make your regulatory obligations. You know, it's called the order protection rule. Just to ensure you're trading correctly on behalf of your uh, clients, you have to take these fees. 
So from a regulatory standpoint, people are forced to take these fees. And then on the other side of it, the people providing the fees, the exchanges, can do whatever they want to a certain extent in terms of charging for those fees. And that's where it's not entirely fair. If you could buy NASDAQ's feed and not buy NYSE's feed and actually look someone in the face and pass the smell test, right, and not have to buy one feed over the other, trust me, the competition and pricing would be much, much different. But it has no bearing on anything. I mean, you charge for $15,000 a month for a cable one month and move it up to 20000 the next month, guess what? Your client has no choice but to take that. It's a disingenuous argument to say it's like uh, it's pricing. It's not pricing when you're forced to buy the product. So that's an interesting point. And it, it makes me wonder, will members exchange when it comes online really solve the problem if firms still need to be linked up to all of the stock exchanges, it's not like they're going to be able to say, well, hey, here's this cheaper option that I can then do most of my trading on. I still need to be plugged into the market data from the other participants. Yep. You, you hit the nail on the head because in my opinion, when I first heard about uh, Memex, which we're supportive of, but when I first heard about it, I'm just like, well, isn't that the point of IEX? We are an exchange. We have been an exchange for several years. We don't charge for market data and we have disclosed what it costs. So even if we were to come along and charge a dollar a month for our data feeds, it's a dollar a month more brokers will be obligated slash forced to pay. So how does adding another exchange solve that issue? Although what I do think in fairness to Memex is what they want to show is they're an exchange, right? They're seated by many large brokers. If they garner much market share and, you know, let's say they're five, 10% of the market and they're charging, you know, X percent of the fees for a market data feed for a 10% venue, perhaps they can lead by example and show, okay, you're saying that your data is valuable because you're 8% of the market. Well, I am Memex. We're now 8% of the market. Why are our fees one-tenth the fees of what, you know, venue a is charging, like Archipelago, for example, is 9% of the market. Why are they charging this amount when we're charging this amount? And I think what they're trying to do is, you know, bring the argument to a more logical scale because what, what happens is NASDAQ is the largest individual venue and they'll say, well, their data is more valuable. And I think in fairness to NASDAQ, you could argue that their data is more valuable because the fact that they're the largest exchange of many means that their data is more representative of what public buying and selling interest is. But still, you can't just buy NASDAQ's data and say this is the most representative data feed that's out there. You have to buy everybody's data feed. So I think the argument is best shown that, yeah, here's an exchange that's garnered much more market share. It's a different business model to IEX where non-displayed versus displayed. Uh, displayed just means you have quotes and your market data is more valuable. It's probably part of the reason why Crypto exchanges aren't charging for market data yet because there's so much fragmentation in the market. There's not one venue that has a better picture of the market compared to another. And so it's not really something that would be valuable to a firm. But why, Ronan, do costs need to be zero, right? Like, surely, fair enough, there's an argument to be made that they shouldn't be 1,800% higher than the cost of trading on IEX, which is a figure that you guys have come up with and yeah. thinking about the difference between trading on IEX and your competitors from a market data perspective. But why can't it be somewhere in the middle? What about charging for market data distorts the market or makes it something that you know is bad for the market? Yeah, so absolutely, we don't think that market data should be free. So that's not our stance at all. There just should be some rational basis as to what you're charging for. However, what happens is this, is if you, if you look at IEX versus the other exchanges, on a per share basis, our capture rate, because we charge both sides of the trade, is greater than any other exchange. So we're very profitable on a per share basis. Where exchanges, where they're charging, they call their market data fees and these cables and all this other stuff, they call it subscription business. As opposed to, you know, IEX is more like a variable business. Like we turn on the lights every morning. If someone trades one share or 400 million shares, we get paid on a per share basis. Um, that's the way the markets have been, you know, globally for years till all of the maker taker models and paying rebates and charging for data 
So what I would say is this, is yeah, um, the exchanges are making far more money selling these data feeds and these technology products than they are actually matching trades. Um, yeah. so the, I think the, it's about 50% or at yeah. least close to 50%. Of yeah, the so it's, it's, it's very different. But like, think about this. Your client base is paid on a variable basis, the brokers, and you're sticking them with a subscription fee, if you will, at the beginning of every month. And that subscription fee is continually, continually, year over year, continually being raised and raised at just non, non-market like prices, right? Like you can't, if everybody had to buy, you know, a Tesla and everybody had to buy a Ford and everybody had to buy a Toyota, there would be no pricing control because you can just charge whatever because you have to buy them. It's maybe a bad analogy, but that's basically what it is. You're stuck with it. And, you know, you're a big bulge bracket, said it right this time, and you can't pass the smell test saying, hey, um, T. Rowe Price or Capital Group, I just can't afford to buy these feeds anymore. Yeah, people can afford to buy them, but it's just destroying the profitability of the whole business model. And if you think about it, the people who get all the rebates, like the positive side of exchange fees being cheap when you trade, you know, in a lot of cases, it's a completely different constituent. So a lot of the brokers trading on behalf of the big institutional investors pay a lot to trade and also pay a lot to buy the data feeds. Whereas some of the firms, like some of the market makers who might get a lot of the rebates, yeah, they also have massive frustrations with the exchanges fees. Like Memex has been led by Virtu and Citadel. They are the two biggest market makers in the industry. In fact, uh, I believe the statistic is that in U.S. equity trading, they are on 40% of one side of the trade, meaning... (laughs) On of all volume, the trades in the U.S., Citadel and Virtu are on one side of forty percent of those trades, meaning they're either the buyer or the seller forty percent of the time. Like it, it's a staggering amount, and even even firms of that size have had enough with the with the fees. That's an insane figure. I didn't know it was that high. Yeah, I believe it's, it's twenty five percent Citadel, fifteen percent Virtu. Citadel has just been getting like hammered in the media recently with all the PFOF stuff and just. Financial media doesn't really look too kindly on them. And and then obviously they had the recent uh, $700,000 fine by the SEC or no FINRA. Um, Well, it's funny, you know, when I was working at NASDAQ, one of the executives there uh, used to describe this debate to me from their perspective, which was the brokers, they're spending all their time complaining. It's like we're sitting at a dinner table, they're eating the steak and complaining about us asking them to pass the salt. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a silly way to look at it because, yeah, you can look at a broker and I've heard that argument before and you look at a bulge bracket and how much money in totality a bulge bracket makes. But in fairness, and if you're being honest with yourself, that's because they offer so many services and they have so many different asset classes and angles to which they collect money. And I'm not saying one's good versus the other. But like one tiny portion of what they have to do is interact with stock exchanges to trade. And it's, it's, it's very high-class salt that you're getting there. So I would say, yes. <laughs> that's that's they, that Himalayan pink sand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's being carried back a grain at a time, like for God's sake. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So look. Shipped it out of the Atlantic. Both sides probably um, feel that their argument is correct. I just think, I think at least from our perspective, we are a stock exchange. Uh, we could turn the revenue dial tomorrow and file to charge for market data. Yes, we're smaller than the NASDAQs of the world, so I don't believe we could hand on heart command anywhere near the price that they command right now because the price that they command is just insane because you have to connect to them. But as we grow or as a Memex grow, and you can show that you can have market share and charge a number based on some sort of basis of cost and some sort of basis of profitability, you just can't have it both ways. You can't have it that someone sure. has to take your product and you can charge whatever they want you want for the product. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. 
They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. Are you surprised about how slow moving the sort of regulatory or, you know, agency examination into this aspect of market structure has been, right? I remember yeah. when Brett Redfern joined the agency, right? That was supposed to be a, a big win for folks on the broker side of this argument. He was going to get some stuff done on reviewing market data. Obviously, yes, to your point, you know, we had a few of those um, roundtables and such. And it's it's always been a big topic of conversation and something we've looked at. But um, are you surprised something hasn't happened sooner like this DOJ-SEC partnership tie-up? Are we going to see anything out of that? And uh, how long do you anticipate this to take before we see any sort of action, right? There are a few things yeah. that can come out of this. We could see exchanges be forced to improve the public feeds. Prices could come down. And then obviously nothing could happen. Yeah. Like, I mean, th the way I look at it, and it's not just because they're my regulator, but what I would say is the SEC continue to do better and better and have become more progressive over time. And the fact that, yeah, you had Brett running trading and markets and Brett with the trading experience and having come from a trading floor, I think has been hugely helpful. It's very hard uh, to turn the Titanic and get regulation and things uh, put in place very quickly. Like if you, if you take, for example, the transaction fee pilot, which was a proposal by the SEC to pilot uh, whether exchanges should be allowed to rebate one side of the trade versus the other. And obviously we don't agree with rebates. Again, IEX could charge, you know, could pay rebates tomorrow and grow market share. We don't think it's the right way to grow. So we're on one side and then there are people on the other side. So let's not even get into that debate for a second. But what's been most interesting in that, like in fairness to the SEC, they made this proposal to test a pilot in a small number of names, like 10% of symbols out of 7,000 plus symbols. And the three exchange groups, NYSE, NASDAQ, and CBOE, sued them, sued the regulators, and were successful in the suit in getting the pilot dropped, whereby now the SEC have to go back and reframe the pilot to adopt it again in order for that to happen. And, you know, like it sounds, it's complicated and it just takes a lot of time. So, yes, yeah. um, in the Redfern trading and markets era, uh, I would have expected uh, the transaction fee pilot to go into place. Um, I'm very, very disappointed that it didn't, but I don't in any way fault the endeavors of the SEC. And again, I fault uh, my other exchange brethren for protecting their bread and butter. Uh, paying rebates allows them to charge for all the market data fees, the egregious fees that they do. I mean, the, everything's about self-protection. I, I completely understand it. It's capitalism and business, but it's disappointing to see that it thwarted regulators from being able to test something that, you know, you probably remember, Frank, people have been yeah. arguing about rebates, good, rebates, bad for 15 years now, and we haven't been able to put a pilot into place. So with market data... I think we've made some headway and you kind of hit the nail on the head already. NYSE have come out with sort of a proposal to make an augmented version of their public data feed. It still wouldn't suffice for what brokers need, but the more people are sort of forced to think about these different flavors of cheaper feeds, uh, more information on the cheaper feeds, I think it puts things in a better position and it's, you know, it's a pity, um, you know, it, it, it is a political body. It's a pity that someone like Brett, who I think has done a phenomenal job, uh, couldn't stay there for many more years. You know, I was going to ask a question about the transaction fee pilot, but it's probably for the best that we don't <laughs> dive into that rabbit hole. Um, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, that one you could just have an entire like, and I'm sure you guys have, you and John have had yes. an entire episode on that. Um, I always thought there was one argument that was compelling. The fact that if you were to run this thing, you would have various stocks, certain stocks have their trading impact in a way that some of their competitors wouldn't have their trading impacted as a result of being in these different buckets. So you could have GM maybe trading differently than General Motors trading differently than Ford, for instance. 
Yeah, I mean, it's people were talking about the complexity of changing pricing. I mean, the exchanges change their price uh, and their pricing tiers on a monthly basis, like without exaggeration. There's all kinds of volume tiers and pricing tiers that results in more rebates and more fees. Um, yeah, you could see something where Pepsi and Coke are trading differently. But today, if you buy Pepsi on venue A and buy Coke on venue B, you could have as much as a, double the largest rebate price difference. So it's kind of, it's a little bit silly to say that. Um, but I can understand it as an argument, and it's, it's probably the only argument that makes any sense whatsoever. I mean, I'd be happy on the pilot to just do it across all symbols. <laughs> but uh, it just, it's, um, in the end, there's so many, like, the, the only reason why there are 13 exchanges in the U.S., you know, soon to be, like, 16. Uh, but the reason they, there are, and I said three families own 12 of them, and this is not a slight, this is just factual evidence, is... Most all of them have no discernible difference between them. Are you comparing? Are you comparing your exchange competitors to the Italian American mafia? No, did I? No. I'm sure. Families? No. <laughs> oh, exchange. Yeah, they do call them exchange families. I, I'm an Irish guy. I have no credibility talking that way. But basically, the difference between them is just pricing, and they all have different pricing models and. The transaction fee pilot and 10% of names was just another little pricing model of the like 800 different pricing models that exist in U.S. equities. It was just another little tweak. It is a very simple thing for brokers and exchanges to adopt to. The problem was is if you're an exchange and you believe in rebates, you don't want a pilot to come out and show that rebates at a minimum provide no benefit. Because if there's no benefit and there's the potential for harm, rebates would have gone away and that's why they clawed so hard and like my hats off to them they did, they did a really good yeah. job because i would have never thought you could sue your regulators and win to stop a pilot <laughs> but anyway they did yeah it's it's been interesting um yeah. i mean the exchanges are they're a prickly bunch it seems from the outside and there's no better example of that than when you guys were applying to become one, to join the other families in being an exchange. And I was actually at NASDAQ at the time when you guys won your approval. I think it was in August. It was in the summertime. Yeah, it was June 17th. June 17th. I just remember being very hot and everyone at NASDAQ was very upset and, you know, gloomy about, about this whole thing. And, you know, a lot of it had to was tied to not just them not liking you guys or wanting there to be less competition in the market. You know, maybe you could make that argument. I think one exchange executive re referred to either Michael Lewis's book or or IEX as like a drive-by shooting on the industry or something to that effect. Obviously, there was a lot of tension at the time, yes. but what they would say maybe now in hindsight or or at the time was a lot of it actually just had to do with the change in the market structure that you were adding by introducing this speed bump, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, for folks who aren't super familiar with what that is, it's probably the best known thing that IEX is, is known for, right? This yep. approach to de-emphasize speed in the marketplace and to protect certain players from being picked off is probably how you guys would, would present that. And yeah, absolutely. years later, right, a number of exchanges are now hot on speed bumps. The SEC rejected a plan by SIBO earlier this year to, to introduce one. So I guess just focusing on speed bumps for a brief moment here, um, what do you think has pushed other rivals to get on board with this market mechanism? What made them so controversial, uh, you know, four years ago and, and less controversial today? I, I think, look... What it came down to, again, is, is, is everyone, include, including IEX, has their own self-interests, right? And NASDAQ and the other families, because they all submitted negative comment letters and fought very, very hard for IEX not to become a stock exchange. I mean, we had several hundred comment letters. It's, it's like unprecedented what happened with people fighting uh, both to support IEX becoming an exchange and not becoming an exchange. And you're right, Frank. The whole argument could only be around you know, NASDAQ owns four exchanges. They can't possibly make an argument that no one else can launch a venue. The whole argument came down to the speed bump. And the speed bump just means this. We delay trades 
350 millionths of a second. So 350 microseconds as they come in the door and 350 microseconds as they go out the door. And the whole idea there was centered around not to get wonky, but just providing a better outcome for the resting order. So someone places an order on IEX, it's a better outcome for both buyer and seller. That was the whole goal of it. Um, I think what happened is there was a lot of hysteria around IEX. There was the book around IEX. There was the speed bump and the support of the buy side around IEX. And frankly, I think people were scared and they didn't want the competition. Now, several years after we've become an exchange, even within the first year of us becoming an exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, they literally said um, we would cause a calamity in the entire market, like putting a slow lane on the Autobahn. And six months after we were approved, they launched one of their markets with a speed bump. And funnily enough, they landed at the speed of 350 microseconds delay. And they put our other great feature in as we use a predictive analytics model to protect orders, and they copied it. So um, I think people saw the writing on the wall. Why it's so hot to trot now is we've proven over time as a stock exchange that the performance can be much better. Now, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It depends on who it's much better for. And what I'll say is, at the time of our exchange approval, people were saying things like latency arbitrage doesn't even exist, pickoff doesn't exist. And now you'll see in filings from the CBOE and filings of supportive comment letters from, you know, call them high speed trading firms and brokers using the terminology that the speed bump can protect you from being picked off by predatory trading strategies, latency arbitrage. Like, I'm not asking for people to write us an apology, but Absolutely, unequivocally. <laughs> that's in all these comment letters. IEX right now has filed to do something um, that some people are saying is similar to Edge A. So, like you had just said, Edge A was um, they were not approved. I think it was back in March, but maybe it was April. Their speed bump they wanted to do was a one-sided speed bump, meaning people who were coming in to take liquidity to access liquidity that they saw had to go through a speed bump, but people could cancel their orders without going through a speed bump. And that was where the SEC came in. And look, I, I thought it was an interesting idea of CBOEs, by the way, so I'm not knocking their idea. And I think they've come out with some actually innovative ideas over time, and they just filed for the batch auction in the past day or so. What I would say is it was an innovative idea, but it could only be used by the high speed, the fastest people could avail of the benefit. So what IEX had done is we filed for something called D-limit, but basically D-limit is similar in that we can protect displayed orders. So the same way we protect non-displayed are often called dark orders today, we're close to, I hope, approval from the SEC to provide something called D-limit. And D-limit would be going through our speed bump, but we as the exchange, using our predictive analytic model, would uh, be able to protect resting orders on our book from being picked off by high-speed predatory strategies. This is not to say high-frequency trading is bad whatsoever. There, it's more instead of counterparty um, segmentation, it's, it's counter-interest segmentation. There's very small incremental periods of the day where it's very advantageous to the speediest of the speediest to trade, and it's disadvantageous to everybody else, and we're looking to protect clients within that window. It's the same thing that Edge A we're trying to do. It's just Edge A that couldn't be used by all. What we filed for can be used by all. And just to give you an idea, the exact same people who came out and attacked us for our exchange filing are out and attacking us for this as well. It's public, so I can say NASDAQ are one of the attackers. It'll likely be if we get approved and it's successful and we prove we have better execution quality like we do in our dark trading, that then they'll copy something like this a few years later. Like NASDAQ are very public about comparing Mellow, which is a product idea of theirs, which I actually think is a good idea, by the way. I've said that publicly on panels with NASDAQ there. Um, but what they love to do is compare it to IEX always. So it's, it's very, very interesting that um, we were called charlatans, all kinds of stuff back in the day. Or, sure. Yeah, well, what was it? We were compared to the Seinfeld episode of selling low-fat yogurt that wasn't low-fat yogurt. <laughs> all kinds of nonsense by mature stock exchanges. That one was one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. me too, to be honest, because I'm a smartass. But it's, it is kind of funny. <laughs> that they put that on uh, public filing documents. Well, some of those public filing documents can be really fun to, to, yeah. Oh yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of people listening or a, f a good portion of the audience might be from firms with which you compete. Right. And the question that might be on their mind is, okay, sure. You're a pioneer in speed bumps. You can more easily rest your order on IEX market data costs are 
zero. You have this new innovative D order. So why is market share only still at 3%? What is the impediment there? Yeah, why aren't absolutely. We I mean, I think it's a really, it's a much easier question to answer than people might think. If you, <laughs> if you, if you, if you look at what we right. have for and what we do, we are, uh, where we, where we perform the best is in non-displayed trading. So if you look at m the market and you break it down by segments, about 12 to 13% of volume is midpoint trading. IEX is about 13% of that. We are neck and neck uh, with NASDAQ. Some months were the largest midpoint venue. Uh, some months were second. Uh, we're very, very far ahead of number three. So in the segment that we are designed to protect, which is what we started off doing, we're number one or number two. D-limit that we filed for now will allow us to play in displayed trading. We don't currently play in displayed trading because we don't pay a rebate. Displayed trading is still about 52% of all volume. So if you look at the market segments and where we're punching, we're punching way above our weight. So it's always funny to me when people go, oh, they're a niche player, they're 3% of the market. Well, we're very proud with the 3% that we are. We're a profitable business and we provide you know, in, in our opinion, but also in what we publicly put out there, better execution quality. Now we have the data and we have, the, I guess, the, the era that we're in where displayed trading has just dropped off the face of the earth. No one is arguing that there are strategies picking people off. And now you can use words like latency arbitrage and not be called a charlatan. We filed to, be, to do the exact same thing that we've done non-displayed and displayed. And what I'll tell you is uh, one of our you know, a fairly big detractor of ours, I won't say names right now, uh, an individual had publicly stated how what IEX does for non-displayed trading is ingenious back in our exchange fund. But what did they do for displayed trading? And I would ask that question of anybody out there in the industry, including exchanges. What do you do for displayed trading today other than pay rebates? There has been no innovation in displayed trading in the past 10 to 15 years, which is why more and more volume is going non-displayed. Non-displayed IEX punches way above our weight, which is fantastic and we're very proud of. But in answer to your question, Frank, now with approval of D-Limit, which we hopefully will get, but you know, you can, you can never tell, we feel that we'll be able to punch above our weight with display trading and our market share will grow commensurate with that. So we're not defensive whatsoever when people say like why we're only 3% sure. of the market. I'd say New York Stock Exchange, you had a 200-year head start. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's definitely um, sounds like something you would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of this expansion is, you know, to grow market share and to display trading and, you know, build out the firm. One way you guys try to expand the business historically, if we wind back the clock a few years ago, was to go after really the the more marquee public businesses of New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ vis-a-vis -vis, uh, listings, right? Um, yes. Start up your own listings business. And and the approach, you know, I guess two years ago at this point, feels like even longer, was to lure firms over from these various venues, not necessarily do IPOs to start, but to get some big switches. And you got one in interactive brokers that ultimately fell through. I have two questions about the listings business. First is, what do you think went wrong? Um, why didn't it stick? And number two, do you think maybe in hindsight, and it's always 2020, maybe it would have made more sense to, in 2018, maybe focus on things like D-Limit instead of going after the listings business? Yeah, no. So look, obviously in hindsight, I will tell you the listings business took a lot of focus. Uh, we probably started the listing business a little bit before 2018 in that we were going around meeting with public companies. What happened is this really, in truth, is many companies that we met with showed a, a lot of interest in switching from either New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And as we talked to them and we talked to bankers, they're like, look, an IPO, when a company IPOs, they have so many decisions to make, right? Uh, a listing venue that they choose is only one of them. And who's going to be the first venue to IPO and just like take the risk to go in a venue like IEX that's never IPO'd anybody before. So we didn't go down that angle and we thought that going the switching angle would make a lot of sense. 
when push came to shove, and there's no sour grapes here whatsoever, it's a very, very different business. It's a very, very competitive business, and it's regulated differently. So the incumbent exchanges were able to offer um, their existent listed companies a lot of deals uh, in order to stay listed where they are. The same way, by the way, like NASDAQ and NYSE use um, chits to lure uh, NYSE listed to NASDAQ and NASDAQ listed to NYSE. It's a very, very different business. And it's a business that when push came to shove, it's a business that we didn't want to get involved in. So I would say in, in hindsight, it was probably a strategic error to get involved in it in the first place, to be very honest. We were focused all along on things like D-Limit and D-Limit was born out of DPEG and our predictive signal. And that's how we grew over time to become the largest midpoint venue. So it's not like we lost focus there, but I think some focus was lost on listings. But it, it's kind of like, it's, it's one of those things, do, do, I, do I regret it? Of course I regret it. Like it, it didn't go super well, but like it didn't derail us either. So it was kind of like a case of nothing ventured, nothing gained. But yeah, of course, uh, hindsight is, 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 is always the best. We clearly did not enter the business to not be successful in the business. But I take a lot of pride in how quickly we pivoted and decided to get out of the business. You guys are missing out on this this massive SPAC mania, though. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole nother. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, yeah, like it's a whole different ball of wax. But yeah, yeah they're yeah, so like, interesting. Yeah, they kind of emerge from like this seedy underbelly of of Wall Street too. Now, I mean. I talked to folks at NYSE NASDAQ, like these are legitimate things. It's almost like the transition that small cap tech companies made. Um, you know, NASDAQ was kind of the kingpin there and NYSE ignore them. And now everybody yeah. has to list basically whatever they can. Yeah. Like I'm not a SPAC expert, but what I say to anyone has Bloomberg access. I read an article in which you saw by Matt Levine the other day, and it was a really good explanation on you know, at a, at a very peripheral level, people think, oh, well, a SPAC will be much cheaper for the company to go public, as opposed to having to pay all these brokers, these bankers, I mean, the money to take them public. And when push comes to shove, uh, that's to be determined at this point. So I, I, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. But um, yeah, look, <laughs> we're focused on growing our trading business. You know, we, we've launched another uh, business called Cloud on the side that that's going very, very well as well. So we haven't sat there uh, lamenting listings whatsoever. And if anything, it's just given us back more time to focus on other, uh, you know, better avenues for IEX to, to, to play in. Something that I just find so fascinating. No one's really talked about it, but just because I kind of have that more traditional equity market background to the extent that I do. Everyone has an opinion on, you know, Robinhood and payment for order flow and, and these orders getting routed to Citadel and, and the like. And you have an entire regulatory structure over that. And there are still people who think that there's bad behavior going on. In crypto, a lot of these brokerages and retail brokers do the same exact thing. Yeah. But in a paradigm in which there is no idea of, of what best price is, there's no regulator overseeing it. And so you have like billions of dollars a month worth of Robinhood and other brokers retail flow just going to jump and these other HFTs and there's no oversight at all. It's, it's a funny angle because a lot of people in that space, from, from, from what I hear, so I'm not speaking from authority, sort of don't necessarily want a regulation to the extent that we have it over here, but sort of be careful what you ask for. So I think there, there is a happy medium as to how that is regulated. And like you said, look, even in the regulated sphere of U.S. equities, there is, you know, there's fines that are levied. There's things that happen, but it's, it's much more orderly than it would be otherwise. So um, I can't believe I'm calling for regulation, but I, I do think there, there is a stark benefit to it, although there's probably a stark uh, resistance to it in the crypto world. But I, yeah, I, I, we I have think that libertarian bent. Yeah. You know, we're very yeah. free market. Be careful what you ask for, right? <laughs> fair. We yeah. shall see. It's interesting. I, I know we're getting close to, we are at the end of the hour, but I, I hope I can just hold you on for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, no worries. Your press folks, the flax who are sitting quietly uh, in the corner of the 
recording are at the bottom technically. Sent <laughs> over an interesting point in the email before we turned on the mics about some of the things you might be interested in talking about. One of them was the advice you might give to some of these burgeoning cryptocurrency exchanges. I never even thought of asking you about something like that, but it's a really interesting question. Like, I don't know, like, do you pay attention to what some of these exchanges are doing? Like, I mean, Coinbase was in the news a lot for trying to build out a low latency matching engine to go after yeah. the high speed traders. You kind of alluded earlier in the conversation about how soon get ready, you know, they will also charge for market data. So I'd be curious to know if you like pay attention to some of the market structure on the crypto side and, and whether you do or not, I'd also be curious to know like maybe what advice you might give them or, or lend them. Yeah. So in truth, I don't really. So like we, we look at it and I probably look at it more so because people that I've known in the industry or even some former IEX people have kind of gone and like dabbled in that space. So it's, 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 it's more, um, aggressively curious i would say it's a i think like anything and even around like the electronification of trading uh it just takes time to sort of like eke out and see what it becomes you know will it become like low latency for real and will it look like u.s equities um very, very hard to say but yeah you brought up a great point like to the extent that all of these venues are not necessarily tied together in a way so that you don't really have the same thing as like the best price in the market. Um, I'm wondering if that's something uh, that people would want to see, or do they like that that space be more deregulated? Like both, both the good and bad of U.S. equities and being so regulated is that you're regulated. But um, what I would say, as a, I guess, if I put my entrepreneur hat on, not to sound stodgy, but um, if you're launching a, a venue in a I know this will sound corny, but this is crazy story that's true. Um, Brad and I, Brad's the CEO of IEX, and I got to meet and have lunch with a former president, George Bush. And it was during the process of our exchange filing. And, you know, we were just telling him how we're getting attacked from every side. And um, he basically had said, like, if you stick to your guns and do what you believe, that's the best thing to do. And I'm not saying that we took all of our advice from former president George Bush, but like, Hearing it from someone, you know, who held that office, whether you respect or don't respect the office during his tenure there, I mean, was, was very, very telling. And what I would just say is um, to anyone like launching businesses like these, it is a constant roller coaster. And there's great days, there's bad days. And the way I look at it is we're always learning as we go. And it's just about plotting ahead. And yeah, you're going to have people like we constantly have people uh, picking at IEX and then copying things we've done and never being called to the carpet for the full of shitness level of them attacking us in the first place. But you can't worry about that. Just, you know, get after it. And I do think, obviously, not, not putting myself in the wisest position in the world, there is absolutely something in crypto. Absolutely. Where it goes, it's really hard to tell right now. But um, that's like anything. So I'd say a lot of the people who you interact with now, Frank, are kind of at the cutting edge of this. And it, it kind of reminds me of like the whole ATS world back in the mid to late 90s when all of a sudden there was competition on exchanges and ATS stands for Alternative Trading System and people started to create all these other competing exchange-like things and they just morphed into, you know, there was only NASDAQ and NYSE back then. Now look what the market looks like. And I, and I think it's probable to say that will happen in, in the crypto industry as well. Hopefully that makes sense. But I would just say stick to your guns, stick to your knitting. And trying to like, figure out yeah, best yeah. price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out best price. Because then, then you can charge for market data, people. Exactly. <laughs> and, and get the market surveillance out there, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ron and Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on, Frank. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface 
TradeView to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes, all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.